As we continue our study of Mark's gospel, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to continue to see this, this story that Mark is telling us about Jesus Christ and how Jesus went about teaching people, but not only just teaching them, but he also performed these miracles and he healed people. He had compassion on them. We're going to notice all of these things here in this chapter, and we're going to notice a little bit more also about uh, what happens sometimes whenever uh, people speak up faithfully to what God has already uh, told us to do. That might not make too much sense just yet, but it will as we look at this chapter. So Mark chapter 6. Let's look at verses 1 through uh, the first half of verse um, 6 here. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So in this passage, we already see that, that he is teaching. We also see that people are amazed at his teaching, and they're recognizing that his teaching is something that's a little different. He has this certain type of wisdom, and they're wanting to know because he didn't grow up going to their uh, their like specialty schools. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to say that that Jesus didn't know some things. I mean, obviously he did, um, but he wasn't trained to be this expert in the law. So they're wondering, okay, this guy is teaching with some type of wisdom. He didn't go to to special school to learn this wisdom. Where did he get it from? You know, if he had gone to a special school, then they would have said, oh, wow, he really picked up on these things that his teachers was uh, was giving him. But that's not his background. His background is is average. You know, we know Mary and Joseph. We, we know his brothers and sisters. And, you know, he's just kind of one of us. But he was actually so much more as well. His wisdom came from above. His wisdom came from God. They also recognized that he was performing these miracles. Now, you know, I mean, I don't know kind of what they would normally do with just kind of a, an ordinary person uh, doing miracles because, you know, we're introduced to a few people here and there who were able to do miracles. But it was pretty rare. Uh, it, it was extremely rare. But they were noticing Jesus is performing these miracles. There's something different about Jesus. Where did he get this information? He oftentimes openly told them he, get, he gets it from our Heavenly Father. Well, of course, they didn't always want to uh, uh, to accept all of these things. And we also see this connection between these, these miracles of healing and faith. Because in verse 5, we actually hear that Jesus uh, could not do any miracles there in his hometown because people didn't have faith in him and he couldn't do miracles there. Um, even though that statement is stated that he couldn't do any miracles, I love how it says, uh, but lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Okay, that, that's kind of pretty significant. You know, I... I, I kind of find it interesting that, that we uh, that we read about that because, you know, for, for most of us, we would consider it a pretty significant thing if someone could lay their hands on a few sick people and heal them. But whenever you look at really the, the big story about Jesus' ministry, 
uh, relatively speaking, he was doing very few miracles there because very few people had faith in him. And we also find out something in verse six. Now, you know, most of us would probably uh, like to think that it would be something really cool if we could say that Jesus was amazed at us, you know, that, that we are something uh, so, so unique that he's amazed by what we do. But verse six tells us sometimes if Jesus is amazed at you, it's not always a good thing. Verse six tells us that he was amazed at their lack of faith. But that's certainly not something that we want to be known for, that we want to be recognized by Jesus Christ for is because we have a lack of faith. Yet that's what Jesus' hometown was known, uh, at least by him as, is someone who just didn't have faith, as, as a group of people who didn't have faith. Obviously, I think that there were some individuals who did have faith. Those were the ones who were able to be healed. But for the most part, they didn't have faith in him. If Jesus was treated like this and his message was treated like this, why should we as servants of Christ expect better treatment that Jesus himself got? You know, I think there's a lesson that we can learn. And, and you've, I'm sure, heard me say that before. But it's a message that I think that we need to be reminded of, that Jesus got treated in very many different types of ways, and that's how people are going to treat us too. If they treated him well, they're going to treat us well. If they treated him badly, they're going to treat us badly. It's just how it goes. But there's still more about this because Jesus is not the only one who's going to be doing these, these teachings and these miracles. He's going to send out other people as well, send out his disciples, uh, specifically this group of 12. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter 6, picking back up in the last half of verse 6, going on down through verse 13. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you. Leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Okay, so in this passage right here, uh, what we do see is that, that Jesus is still going about and he's still teaching. Um, and what he does here in verse seven is he sends out these 12. He sends them out in groups of two. Now, you know, there, there's a lot that we can uh, kind of try to guess as to, to why you would do that. Uh, of course, it's safer in numbers like that, you know, if you have somebody else there. And also, if you've ever worked with someone else and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to evangelize before, uh, for whatever reason, sometimes whenever you are put on the spot, and this happens to me too, okay? So, so I guess I can just say it from my perspective. Sometimes whenever I am put on the spot, uh, and, you know, with, with some type of a question, for whatever reason, my mind goes blank and I can't think about what it is. Well, guess what? It's very beneficial. It's very practical for you to have somebody else there with you, because then if you can't think about it, then, you know, perhaps they can, or at least they can maybe at least encourage you and help you in those difficult times whenever, you know, your brain just isn't working and these things just aren't coming to you. So that's part of it on a practical standpoint. It's why you would want two by two. But there's also kind of, I guess you might say a little bit of a, of a biblical uh, concept here. And that is, you could accept the testimony of two or three witnesses. You could accept their testimony. You weren't supposed to accept the testimony of just one person. 
but two or more people you could. So having multiple people right here, it was saying, look, this message is true. We know it's true. And that's another reason why Jesus would send them out like this. We also noticed there uh, from verses 8 through 11 that uh, it, the way that Jesus sent them out isn't saying that we have to be sent out like that today. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being sent out the same way. But they were sent out for a very limited time. That's kind of one of the reasons why they weren't supposed to take all these extra things. You know, the more you take with you on a journey, the longer it takes to make that journey. They were supposed to go out quickly and, and get this news out uh, very fast. But here in this case, um, you know, they, they were told really sort of how they were supposed to not really carry anything extra with them and that they were supposed to rely upon uh, what people would give them, you know, at that time. And, and it was kind of this this uh, this test of faith as well for them going throughout these villages because they had this message, they had this task, they needed to proclaim it. Once again, nothing wrong with us doing the same thing and following this today, but recognize this isn't how they were called to live their entire life. This is how they were called during this this uh, this limited amount of time right here. And in verse 12 and 13, we find out what they were doing. They were preaching. Well, part of that message, of course, is repentance. We need to learn this lesson too. That part of our message most certainly needs to be repentance, that, that all people need to repent. Verse 13, some more things that they were able to do is they were able to drive out many demons. They were given that authority by Jesus Christ and they were also healing people. Now, one of the ways in which they were healing them, you know, of course, we, we kind of tend to think about them, them laying on their hands and kind of being a little bit more miraculous of a healing. And yeah, that happened some. But we also find out that they anointed many sick people with oil. Now, to us, uh, I guess I would say it's not as common for us to anoint people with oil and, uh, you know, for us to connect that with kind of taking care of the sick and, and for us to connect that with um, a form of medicine. But for these people right here, um, that was a way of taking care of people. Um, it was one that, you know, wasn't just like, well, you lay your hands on somebody and they're just instantly healed. It was... Well, sometimes it took some time and everything. This anointing with oil was part of their practice that they had in their day. And of course, we find out that some people, even today, they still uh, use oils uh, as uh, you know, some type of medicine, some type of, uh, of healing uh, within people. Um, so this passage right here, it's talking about this and you, you have uh, this job that they were sent. They were supposed to take care of people, preach to people, yes, but take care of them also. And we need to make sure that within our own ministries today, that we balance those things out. It's not always just about preaching and saying, oh, well, you need to repent. It's also taking care of people and helping people. Uh, let's continue reading though. And now we're gonna see uh, some more information about how it went for, for John the Baptist. Verses 14 through 20. King Herod heard about this for Jesus's name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claim, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound him uh, and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, 
he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Okay, so we find out a little bit about here, and, and now we're going to see what, what did happen uh, to John, even though it's kind of already been mentioned that John was beheaded uh, by, this, uh, by this King Herod here. We're going to get to that story next. But right now, um, just notice a few things about John's ministry and, and kind of what's taking place. We see Jesus' ministry is growing, okay? Even the king has heard things about it, and he wants to, you know, also kind of, he's a little concerned about what's going on. Um, people are saying, verse 14, some people say that, that John the Baptist was raised from the dead. That's what they were saying is, is happening with Jesus. It's very interesting to me, though, that one of the reasons that they give is that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Um, they're attributing miraculous powers to John the Baptist, even though we actually have other passages in the Gospels that tell us that John didn't do miracles. Now, he preached, and yeah, he took care of people. He didn't do miracles, though. That wasn't his task. That wasn't his role. So that goes to show you that, you know, even in today's uh, world, with us being the body of Christ, our jobs are not always the same. Um, but it is interesting that they were saying, oh, well, Jesus uh, has got to be John the Baptist, um, you know, uh, raised from the dead because he's got these miraculous gifts. It's kind of interesting because John didn't even have those things. But they were just saying, OK, well, this is a, a very recent um, prophet and he got killed. So he's, you know, he's wanting revenge or something. And that's why uh, Jesus is coming through here. They kind of make up some of those stories. We find out there's no truth in those things. John the Baptist, once he died. Um, he, he went to be with the Lord. Uh, but what happened is Jesus is someone new. Now, I'm not trying to to belittle what happened to John because that was very, I mean, that, that was very horrible. But we also find out the reason why it happened to John. Well, we find out in verse 18, he was doing the typical thing that a prophet would do. He was calling people to repent. And in this case, he, he was saying, it's not lawful for you. He was pointing the finger at Herod. Now, Obviously, that's not always a very safe thing to do. Sometimes it is a necessary thing to do. Sometimes we might have to, so to speak, point the finger at those people in authority and tell them this isn't right. This has got to change. But at the same time, we need to recognize that, look, if that's our job and if we are, are to call out uh, people of great authority, we need to make sure that what we are saying is true and we need to make sure uh, that uh, we are also uh, ready to accept the consequences that might come our way. I'm not saying that uh, not to do it. I'm just saying we need to understand the consequences connected with it. We see that he was calling them out to abide by the law of God. And we also find out that at least Herod respected him somewhat. I mean, he feared John the Baptist, and he knew him to be a righteous and holy man, recognized that people of the world even, even understand uh, whenever we are followers of God, whenever we are followers of Jesus Christ, uh, they can even pay attention and notice what's going on. But obviously that's not always enough to protect us from negative consequences. Just like John the Baptist, he did get beheaded. This is the story of that happening. Verses 21 through 29. Now we get more information of, of what happened and how uh, John's life was ended. Verse 21. Finally, opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give, uh, I will give you up to half my kingdom. 
She went out and said to uh, her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king uh, with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and uh, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I mean, isn't that so horrible as to what happened? I think another lesson that we can find is we need to be careful what we promise. We need to be careful, you know, what we agree to. Because Herod, he didn't want to do this, but because of his word, he, he knew that he had to go ahead and, and, and do it and, and say it. There were so many things that were wrong with this situation. And it, it uh, resulted in the death of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, his own followers, were ones that, that gave him a proper burial at that time. Because apparently he didn't have anyone else um, who, who was able to, to fill that role. But his followers came in and they helped him out during that time. So after that time, uh, of course, Jesus is going to be even more prominent than what he has before. John told everybody, even you know, in his own preaching, that Jesus is going to increase and John is going to decrease. And that most certainly happened uh, whenever John was put to death. Now Jesus continues on and he shows that God has not been conquered. Yes, a messenger of God has been put to death, but the message of God, it still needs to be boldly proclaimed and it still will be boldly proclaimed. Verses 30 through 34. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported him all they, uh, all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So this passage, once again, I, I'm kind of drawing out, drawing out this lesson for us, bringing out this lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples. You know, he practiced it himself that he needed to go into a solitary place and spend some time in prayer with God. But he's also teaching his disciples to do that. That is something we need to emphasize today. And I know, you know, right now you might be thinking, I've got too much solitary time. Use this as an opportunity to learn about this time of solitude, to be able to spend it with God, to be able to, to grow spiritually. Because we do need these times. There will be a time whenever we need to be among the people and openly proclaiming it. But there also needs to be a time whenever we just take a break from all of those things and make sure that, that we uh, ourselves are, are right with God and that our relationship with God is right. We see this, this crowd of people that's coming in. You know, there's hardly anything that Jesus and his disciples can do to get away from this crowd. Verse 34, we find out that whenever he sees this crowd, he has compassion on them. He, he talks about them being like sheep without a shepherd. And that's an image that's used uh, in the Old Testament a few different times. But the sheep without a shepherd, the beautiful thing about that image that shows up in the Old Testament is that 
God fills that role at that time. Whenever he sees his people being like sheep without a shepherd, he says, look, I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm going to lead you. And I can't help but say, say that that's what Jesus is seeing right here. That's what Jesus is feeling. He is feeling that it's his time to step up and to be the shepherd and to lead this sheep. And that's why he was continuing to teach them and to show them these great things. He's teaching a really large crowd right here. And now we're going to see another miracle that this crowd experiences. Verses 35 through 44. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. So all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. We see this large group of 5,000 men who is gathering. And of course, you know, that's not even including any uh, women or children who were present in this group. But a large group of thousands of people are being fed by Jesus Christ. By one single meal, he's feeding them all. And he tells his disciples at first, he says, you give them something to eat. And they don't know how they're going to do that. How are they going to possibly do this? Even if they go into to the surrounding villages, does it really even make sense that you would be able to buy enough food for 5,000 plus people? I mean, these villages are, you know, just, well, think about your own town. If 5,000 people all of a sudden just came into it, would you have enough food for them? Maybe so. Depends on how big of a town you live. I, I you know, Edmonton itself, if we had 5,000 extra people and, okay, let's say that there's women and children, let's just go ahead and say 10,000 people. If 10,000 people all of a sudden came to Edmonton, how well could we adequately feed them? And we're only talking about one meal. And so, you know, you start to see whenever you actually kind of do the math and start to factor that in, in your own community, you start to realize, oh, wow, this is a big problem. How in the world are they going to do this? Jesus shows them the way. Jesus shows that God will always provide. And he asks them how much they have. They say how much they do have. And then what God does, what Jesus does, is he multiplies it. He gives thanks for it, and then he multiplies it, and it's enough to feed this entire group. It's also enough that there's leftovers. And we find out that they save those leftovers. And there, there's a lot to, to learn about that. One of them is, of course, uh, to not be wasteful uh, with, with the extra things that God gives us. But in addition to that, kind of on a little bit more of a more personal basis, um, it, it was kind of customary during the uh, uh, for the different people groups of the Middle East um, that if you were going to invite somebody over and feed them, it, it was a really nice thing if you had leftovers at the end. So, you know, that way they could eat all that they, they needed and, you know, all that they wanted and there was still food left over. That was kind of being very hospitable. Uh, um, showing a lot of hospitality, being very hospitable. There we are. I'll get it right in a moment. And Jesus is showing that 
That's how he is with all of these people. Because he looks out at him and he sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. He's going to guide them. He's going to lead them. All that we have to do is follow him. So he's teaching them. He's taking care of them. He cares a great deal about them. There's still a, a couple more stories to learn, though, uh, throughout this chapter. Verses 45 through 52 now. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to uh, ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass uh, by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Let's pause right here. There's just a few more verses I know left in this chapter, but I want to pause right here and notice this, this miracle that Jesus is walking on the water. There's a lot of weird things about this one, but what we definitely see is that Jesus is in control. And that's a lesson that he is trying to teach them. They are afraid. They're terrified. You know, they have their own ideas. They think, oh, they're seeing a ghost. I mean, what would you think if you saw somebody, uh, what looked like somebody walking on the water towards you? Well, they thought he was a ghost. They didn't think that, you know, this was maybe really happening or something like that. They were just trying to figure it out. But then he gives them a word of assurance. In verse 50, he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, depending on your translation, I just want to give you a little bit more of, of encouragement from what Jesus says. Jesus says this phrase that is translated, it is I. But you know, with that statement, it is I, the way the Greek works, it's the same type of statement as what was found to Moses from that burning bush. Whenever he asked, well, you know, who should I say that is sending me? You know, who are you, God? And God responds, I am. That's the response. He is the I am. So whenever Jesus says it is I, that could also be saying I am. So if you read it like that, he is saying, take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. He is identifying himself as the great I am. At least that's what I believe one of the things that we see within that. After all, doesn't that make sense that he is the I am? He is the creator of all of these things. And of course, he is the king of it. That's why he can just walk across the water just as if it were dry land. And of course, they don't understand these lessons. Verse 52, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it. We're talking about the disciples right here. We're talking about the apostles. I think we need to take to heart what's being stated right here. Their hearts were hardened. We need to look at our own hearts and make sure that our own hearts aren't hardened. Because if the apostles' hearts could be hardened, couldn't ours? You know, we don't need to think of ourselves as being above this. We need to recognize, look, we are human and we need to make sure that we keep it always in check. You know, our hearts and, and everything like this, we, we need to keep those things in check. And we need to make sure that we are understanding the things that God is teaching us. They didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand Jesus is the one who's providing all these things. He's saying that he is God. He has come and he is providing every single need that they have. He is the one who's in charge. He's our king. These are all lessons that we can learn about Jesus and who he is and how great he is. 
There's just a little bit more, though, in this chapter. Verses 53 through 56. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. We see that no matter what Jesus is doing, he can't get away from these crowds. That's why many times he tells them, look, don't tell anybody what happened, because news is already spreading like wildfire to begin with. Jesus doesn't need them to openly proclaim it even more. The message has already been proclaimed. It's already gotten out. Everybody is expecting Jesus to come, and whenever they, they hear about him coming, they bring out everybody who needs this healing. And you know what Jesus does? He heals them. He has compassion on them. We see the love of God in these verses. We see how much Jesus loves us and how much he cares for us. Don't you think that, you know, of course, because we, we still are following the same Jesus today, don't you think he still loves us? Don't you think he still has the same type of compassion for us? I believe he does. And I believe that what he's teaching us is he is in charge of everything. All we need to do is to not be afraid and follow him.